Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. My guest today, lovely listeners, is author Steve Matthews. Steve writes children's and adult fiction and lives on a farm on the outskirts of Sydney. His latest novel for adults is a book with a title that certainly gets your attention. Inspired by true events, this book was, for me, an emotional and at times quite brutal read, but utterly compelling nevertheless. A story of such incredible courage and survival, it will take your breath away. The book is called Hitler's Brothel, published by Big Sky Publishing at the end of last year, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to chat with Steve on the podcast. Welcome, Steve. Uh, Thank you, Claudine. It's terrific to be here, and uh, I hope your listeners enjoy what we've got to say. I'm sure they will. Now, Steve, I wanted to say congratulations on the publication of this book. I can't begin to imagine the kind of research you have to do to write Hitler's Brothel. There's such an astonishing amount of detail woven in this book. And as I said, it was so compelling. It's such a unique perspective on the events of the war in the Nazi regime. Can you tell me how you came to write this novel? It goes back a long way, really, because um, many years ago, when I was living in the UK, a colleague of mine said he was going to go to Poland to see his family. He was of Polish background. And I knew he couldn't speak Polish. And I knew his wife, who was also Polish, she couldn't speak Polish. And when they got back, I said to them, how did you go? Did you understand them? Did they understand you? And uh, he just looked at me flat-faced, and I can feel the goosebumps rise on my arms now, Claudine, as I tell this. said to me, I didn't tell you I was going to meet them. I told you I was going to go and see them. And their photographs are on the wall in Block 6 at Auschwitz. So his parents actually survived different concentration camp, but all his aunties, uncles, grandparents, everybody perished at Auschwitz. And uh, it horrified me and interested me as well. Years later, I got the opportunity to go to Berlin just after the wall came down. So uh, I popped on a plane and went across to uh, Krakow and uh, then to Auschwitz and wandered around in a bit of a trance, really, because, my goodness me, it's a uh, atmospheric place. Uh, when I came back, colleague of mine said, did you go to Block 24 where the brothel was? And at that time during the tour that I took, there was no mention of the brothel. And, and that's really where uh, Hitler's brothel was born from that, from that event. It was an incredibly fascinating insight into something that I don't think I've ever heard of before. As I said, it was a completely unique perspective on the events that happened during that time. Was the impetus for you to begin Anya and Danuta's story? Was Anya based on a real life person? No, the circumstances around the plot in the book are are real. So the Germans actually went out to Polish villages and towns and just took women and made them work in the brothels. And the bit that that really got me was when I started researching, I found out when the camps were liberated, a lot of the Germans um, donned prisoners' uniforms, those striped uniforms they used to wear, the pajamas, and tried to hide amongst the survivors in the camps. And uh, some of them actually escaped and ended up in countries. That, to me, was um, a great move towards the end of the book. For those who haven't read the story yet, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about it. It actually opens in a nursing home in New Jersey, America. And 
Anya, who's one of the sisters, is working there as a nurse. And um, a gentleman arrives uh, claiming to be um, a Polish migrant. He's been living in America since the Second World War. And he claims that he was in a concentration camp and was abused by the Nazis. And he also claims he was a bit of a hero at the end of the war. And he's got all these press cuttings where the different places he's lived in, the newspapers have done articles on him. But there's something about the fellow that uh, reminds Anya of uh, the concentration camp that she was in. So the story then shifts over to the start of the Second World War when the Germans invaded Poland. And uh, after the first wave of the Blitzkrieg, there's another group that comes along and does terrible things to the local people and also takes away women to work in the brothels in the concentration camps. Anya and Danuta are living in a, a small farm in a make-believe town, and the Germans turn up there to take the, the two young girls away. Uh, Danuta escapes into the forest, and Anya is actually taken. It's from there that the story really um, splits, because Danuta ends up working for the Polish underground, or working with them, and Anya ends up in the brothel. And both the, the girls wonder what happened to each other. So the whole story is about them trying to find each other through the whole book. You see what happens to their lives and the trials and tribulations they go through. And they are eventually reunited, but under very tragic circumstances. And at the end of the book, we go back to um, the nursing home in New Jersey. And Anya has been nosing around a little bit. And this Polish fellow, it turns out he's definitely German and he's definitely the one who was at the camp. He is the one that um, was the most brutal of all the people at the camp. So she's left with a dilemma. Does she report him to the police or the authorities and say, look, I can prove that this fellow is not who he says he is. He's actually a war criminal. So that's one option that she's got. Another option is, does she just leave him be because he's uh, a bit of a doddery old fart and he's miserable and grumpy and he fears he hasn't got that much time left to live anyway. So does she just sort of walk away and, and let sleeping dogs lie? Or the third option is, does she try and seek what I call natural justice and deal with him herself? I can't tell you what she does, but it certainly makes people think. and we've had a terrific amount of correspondence from readers who put themselves in Anya's position at the end of the book and said, what do I do? How do I deal with this man? Because he needs dealing with. I'm not entirely sure what I would do in the same circumstances as Anya. From an, an historical perspective, as I you know, have alluded to, it was fascinating. But as I mentioned earlier in my introduction, from an emotional perspective, I'm not going to lie, some of the details you managed to weave into this narrative were distressing and often quite brutal. Terribly dark themes populate this novel, even though it is the ultimate story of courage and survival. So I wanted to ask you, how did you prepare yourself to write those scenes and descriptions? That's quite an interesting question, really, because the research was the bit that, that caused me the distress, not actually writing the story. I've tried to make the story graphic because it's it's a horrific situation, and I've tried to make the scenes real in that sense. 
but I've also tried to make it entertaining so that you go through the sort of gory bits, if you want to call them that, but you still want to keep reading. You still want to turn the page. Primarily, I'm trying to write an entertaining piece and also something that documents a dark side of history. Mm. So I didn't struggle too much writing it. I struggled researching it, but I have a formula um, that amuses my wife immensely because I break for an hour at lunchtimes. I sit and watch the Housewives of New York or something like that. <laughs> I watch real trash television, which infuriates Diane. <laughs> and at night times too, sometimes I have to do that. And it just empties my brain of, of the scenes that I've been writing about. So that's my formula for escapism. Housewives of New Jersey, it is. That's the one. I'm not surprised that you need a bit of light relief as a result of writing those. So a couple of times we've mentioned the research that you did for this book. So can you take me through what research you actually had to do in order to be able to bring Anya and Danuta's story to the page? That's interesting as well, because when I found out about the brothel in the concentration camp, there was very, very little evidence of that around, even on the internet. I made another visit to Poland to see how people lived in the country and what the countryside would be like. So that gave me enough material to, to be able to write the background. I got on to the Simon Wiesenthal Centre and also the Auschwitz Museum in Poland uh, through the internet. And they very kindly pointed me in a lot of directions where there were um, documentaries and uh, books and things like that. And gradually all the pieces together but it was a real struggle to find the information and the camps were liberated in uh, January 1945 the women who worked in the brothels were treated very badly by survivors that there were in the camps also by the local communities they were seen to be uh, having an easier life I mean they slept on beds they had blankets they had toilet paper a lot of the women were brutalized and also deeply ashamed of, of what they'd done during the war despite the fact they had no choice in it. And so they sort of disappeared. And it's only two years ago that a, a German author actually wrote a very telling book about the brothels. And he was invited into German parliament. And Angela Merkel insisted that every single member of parliament be there as he went through what happened to these women in these brothels and since then, it started coming out a little bit. It was difficult to research, but that makes it interesting. Steve, I closed the cover on this book thinking that I don't know why I'm continually amazed by the human instinct for survival, but also the human capacity to commit such indescribable atrocities, the likes of which have been documented in vivid detail in this book. And each time I read a book about the war and the people who managed to survive, I wonder if I could survive. Uh, would I have the strength to do what needed to be done? I I wonder, is that something that you consciously thought of when you were writing this book? Oh, gosh, ever so much, ever so much. Uh, at the end of the book, I, I put some of my own thoughts into it, and I don't know what I would have done, to be honest. I mean, there are times where I think I'd have thrown myself on an electric fence and been done with it, and other times I, I think, no, bugger them, I'm going I'm to survive this. So I don't know where people got their courage from. Apparently, quite a few of the ladies in the brothels suicided on the electric fence. Um, a lot of them died from disease. And uh, quite a few of them apparently uh, were sent to the gas chambers because they were pregnant. So the, the few that did survive 
when when the camps were liberated, as I say, they were um, chastised and, and hounded by certain unities. So obviously, they didn't want to talk about it and didn't want to know about it. And hopefully, tried put it in the back of their minds and and in the back of my mind all the time when I when I found that information out was Anya, what she would do, what that character would do. But she's a remarkably strong woman. That brings me back to the question that I tried to ask before. Was the character of Anya based on a real-life person or a real-life account of what it was like for women who worked in the Auschwitz brothel? I mean, I know you just said there wasn't a great deal of information available about that, but I wondered. All the characters in my books are based on people that I know and people that I admire. Uh, So there's a bit of this and a bit of that in Anya, as there is in Danuta and other protagonists in the book. don't know if you recall... In the nursing home, there was a bed-hopping geriatric called Les, who pretended he had dementia and woke up in different women's beds at different times. That's actually my father-in-law, and that's his real name. (laughs) He gave me permission to use it, and he's rather proud that he's a a bed-hopper, because he's 91 now, I think, 91, 92. And also the incident with the red handbag, Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a true story. That's a true story. A friend of ours worked in a nursing home and she told us that story. And I, that's hilarious. I, yeah, I know. It's, it's awful, but really good. It, the old lady uh, who squirts the tomato ketchup in the German's place towards the end of the book, she's based on my ex-mother-in-law. I don't know why. The, the characters pop up and, and they just take this form and I base them on people that I know and love and uh, and try and um, show them as decent people in, in amazing circumstance. Careful what you say, Claudine, or I might put you in my next book. That is just so good. I love that. But, I mean, look, what really amazed me about this book, Steve, was your capacity to get inside the heads of all the different characters. I mean, you know, granted that, that there are real people in there aside, you know, the SS officers who ran the concentration camp, Wiesnitscher, and the Kapos and Sonderkommandos who were, you know, the other camp prisoners enlisted by the Germans to run the camps, you know, the women who were rounded up to work in the brothel, and let's not forget the Polish resistance, the Polish Home Army. Each of these different perspectives were written in such vivid and convincing detail. So was this difficult for you? Um, first of all, thank you for saying that. That's very kind of you. It's nice to know that uh, your characters um, resonate with readers. Yeah. I spent so long, I, I can't define how long I spent researching this, but the, the characters formed in my head and uh, it wasn't difficult writing them because I knew the paths they were going to tread through the story. I always start, every book I've ever written, including the children's books, I have an ending for them. I know what the ending is going to be. I certainly did with, uh, with Brothel. So once I've got an ending then I've got somewhere to go and the characters just pop up along the path somehow. I can't really define where they come from or they appear. They just they just happen. I live with them for quite a long time. I'm writing another Hitler book at the moment and my poor wife has to live with all these facts I keep throwing at her. Did you know what Hitler's favourite thing was? And, and it's the same with the characters. I'm talking to Diane about the characters in the book all the time. And I sort of live with them, in a way, in my head. And it wasn't hard to write those characters. They were clearly defined in my mind. On that point, how long did it actually take you to write Hitler's Brothel? About nine months from start to finish. 
And that included the editing process. And it, it's a pretty solid nine months because I, I start writing about half past eight, nine o'clock in the morning, an hour's break for lunch, and then just carry on until whenever. Sometimes it's three o'clock the next morning I carry on until, but more often than not, I finish at seven o'clock at night. And, and it's pretty intense during that time, and I get pretty weary and it's snappy probably. Diane, wouldn't it? <laughs> I do, probably. And uh, you just live it. I just live that story until it's all cleansed out of my mind, if that makes sense. Yeah. And and if I've still got bits in my mind, then I know the book isn't right. So it has to sort of drop out of my mind onto the page. And, and once it's all emptied, then uh, I can move on. For me, Steve, it was satisfying to read of the SS members who were rounded up after the liberation and dealt with accordingly. But it also fascinated me to read about the way in which for example, Commandant Fisher tried to flee the camp undetected and the plans that he made for himself afterwards. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? There's uh, an organisation that was run by the Catholic Church called the Rat Line. Have you heard of that, Claudine? No, I haven't. Well, when the camps were liber- liberated, a lot of the Germans, even the camp commanders, wore the uniforms that the prisoners wore and tried to pretend they were actually prisoners. Mm. There's a very famous event that happened with Eichmann and Eichmann was one of the uh, the leaders of the, the Reich and the Catholic Church sort of rebirthed him and he ended up in Argentina and the Israeli government actually sent four secret service agents over to get Eichmann and bring him back to Israel for trial. And they actually went over to um, Argentina with fake passports, captured Eichmann at his house. He was living under a false name that the Catholic Church had given him, Ardo Clement was his name. And he was working for Mercedes Benz. And the Mossad agents actually drugged him in the house and dressed him, Argentinian Airways pilot. And the two agents that took him to the airport were also dressed aircrew from Argentine Airways. And they actually got him through customs and got him through the, the migration, the passport thing, propping him up between the two of them and pretending that he was drunk, but he was actually drugged out of his mind. He could barely speak. He didn't know what was going on. They, they got him back to Israel and he was uh, found guilty in a court in Israel, of crimes against humanity, and he was hung in 1960, uh, the only person ever to be given the death sentence in an Israeli court. So that was an interesting story in itself. And so many of the senior Germans and middle-level Germans tried different ways to escape the, the Russians and the rest of the Allies when the camps were liberated. So. I read about a few of them that actually went on to live normal lives, and I thought that would be a good thing to sort of build into the story. So Fisher, of course, doesn't make it. Um, uh, the Greyhound, as he's, oh, he did make it. So it's sort of based on fact, really. A lot of them, there's probably some that ended up in Australia. I know a lot ended up in the USA. Uh, even more ended up in South America. So. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. There were 8,400 employees at Austin alone. 
It was a massive organization. But when the Nuremberg trials came up, there were only 199 German operatives, SS, and obviously a few members of Hitler's inner circle. There's only 199, 161 of them were found guilty. So what happened to the rest of them is really what you read about in, um, in Hitler's brothel. Yes, the people living amongst us. I know. Isn't it fascinating? And frightening, actually. It's an amazing thing when you think that, that Adolf Hitler, one man, could have brought out the evil in so many people. It's absolutely fascinating. You don't know what's inside you, do you? Whether it's courage or I don't know. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. I would like to say, though, Claudine, um, because we're talking about dark side of this book, but it really is a thriller and a suspense story. Oh, it's yeah, not absolutely. Just, yeah, it's not just full of evil happenings, although there are a few of those in there, obviously. Sorry, Steve, I wanted to chat about your children's fiction for a bit. You can't have written mm-hmm. anything in greater contrast to your children's books when you wrote Hitler's <laughs> Brothel. Tell me, did you always want to be a writer and why did you start with children's books? When I came to live in Australia, my parents were still in the UK, my dad was, and uh, he was terminally ill and he asked me to go over and sort of be with him during his last hours. So I jumped on a plane, but before before I left, my, my kid said, we've got nothing to read, Dad, because I used to read them stories and, and pinch the stories. And because they were pretty boring, so I used to dress them up as I as I uh, told the stories. So when I was on the plane, I wrote a couple of short stories and stayed in England for about six weeks. And Dad passed away, and we dealt with the state. And so I was sending stories back to my kids. And uh, when I got back home, my kids' teacher asked me to go in and tell some of the stories to his class. And he said to me, you should really get these published. They're really good. And that really was what started me on wanting to be a, a full-time author, wanting to write for a living. And uh, the books were very successful, especially in America. And they were sold in America, Canada, UK, and here. But, Claudine, I hope no other children's authors listen to this or, or get upset about it. But children's books now are full of cheap laughs. They're, they're full of dumb jokes and fart jokes and things, and I don't like that. So I've sort of moved away from children's writing and moved into the more serious side. I'm more interested now in writing about difficult subjects for, for adults and trying to make those subjects entertaining. And I'm contracted to write two more Hitler books. I've almost finished the second one, which hopefully will come out towards the end of this year, and then another one next year. Um, they've got a, a bit of a change, a love story that's already written for the year after. And I've got five or six other things in the pipeline. So if I get a bit weary writing one thing, then I, I slot into something else. There are many writers who listen to this podcast, so I wanted to ask you, what would be your top three tips for anyone who was either trying to write a novel or trying to get their novel published? Gosh, Claudine. I'll tell you a story. I heard Paul McCartney, or I saw Paul McCartney interviewed by Michael Parkinson, and Parkinson asked him about a lot of his fans, and he said one of the the best letters he's ever received was from a lady in her 80s who said she wished she had learned the piano when she was younger. And so he actually got in touch with the lady and rang her up and said, what are you on about? 
go and play it now, go and learn how to play it now. And she did in her 80s. And that's what I say to people who want to be writers. It's just right. Everybody's got stories within them. We go around and do a few talks here and there about Hitler's brothel and things like that. And we've, we've heard some fascinating stories from people, older, older people in their 70s and 80s. And all those stories are going to be lost. So that's the first tip. Because if you want to do it, then do it. Have a go at it. Perseverance is another thing, I suppose, Claudine. That's pretty important in any aspect of life, isn't it? Indeed it is. And thanks for that. If listeners wanted to find out more about you and your books, where could they do that? Okay, there's a website. So it's obviously www.stevematthewsauthor.com or bigskypublishing.com com.au or Simon and Schuster, who are the uh, distributors, or on uh, Goodreads. Steve, it's been fascinating to chat with you today. I wish you every success with this book and the others, no doubt, to come. Thank you very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Book. Thanks, Claudine. It's been an absolute pleasure. I enjoyed your questions. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.